This is Jeremy Jung, and you're listening to Software Sessions. In this episode, I speak to Samuel Williams, a member of the Ruby Core team, about building concurrent applications safely. Samuel explains the difference between concurrency and parallelism, the dangers of writing multi-threaded code, how language runtimes like Node, Go, and Erlang handle these problems, and his efforts to improve the Ruby concurrency ecosystem with the async series of gems. Samuel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's really great to be here. So the first thing I want to kind of break down for our audience, you know, a lot of these topics are related to performance, but let's kind of get the ground terms defined first. So to start, what is concurrency? I guess there are lots of different ways of defining this terminology, but it is helpful to have a shared understanding, which is consistent. Otherwise, you can say one thing and someone understands something completely different. So I like to um, use an umbrella term, asynchronicity, which means sort of without time. And under the umbrella, we have concurrency and parallelism. They are similar terms, and you can argue that they mean the same thing, I guess. But I tend to think of concurrency as interleaving work. So if you have a job and you execute that, and you have another job which you execute in the same processor, then that's a form of concurrency because you're, you're sharing the one processor with multiple tasks. Essentially, if you look at parallelism, it's when you have two tasks which are running simultaneously on two different processes. And so those two different concepts, one is sharing a single unit of hardware between multiple tasks, and one is running multiple tasks on multiple independent processes. And so essentially... When you have parallelism, you're saying that you have concurrency because concurrency is working on multiple tasks at the same time, but not necessarily executing at the same time. Is that correct? I like to be a bit more specific with the separation of those two terms, just because I think it's helpful when looking at actual programming models. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, I like to separate them out. I like to think of parallelism as strictly when you have multiple hardware units and multiple jobs running on those hardware units independently, mm-hmm. whereas concurrency is sort of strictly running multiple jobs on a single hardware unit. Now, mm. of course, you can you can sort of mix and match that together. For example, any job that can run concurrently could also be considered running in parallel if if you consider like one processor to be parallel, but it's, it's kind of a misnomer. You kind of think, okay, well, parallelism means kind of two things, at least like a minimum of two things. Mm-hmm. So um, like you can't have a line parallel without some other line for it to be, it's just a relationship between two things, I guess, in that case. So yeah, right. I, I like to think of those things strictly as being different, um, just because I think it's easier to talk about the different models. Mm. If you decide to blur those lines, then it's more difficult to talk about concurrency and parallelism and how they impact models of programming and Mm -hmm. models of computation. And so basically, you prefer to keep them completely separate. So let's say you have a single core CPU. It can only be doing one thing at a time. So that could at most be having concurrency. But as soon as you introduce, say, a dual core CPU, um, you would say that, you know, my program or my tasks are executing in parallel and not really talking using the term concurrency. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, when you have two cores, then you can run tasks uh, on those cores in a concurrent fashion. Mm -hmm. But you can also run two jobs completely independently and they run in parallel. Mm -hmm. So 
I guess the value of that is that when you talk about parallelism, you start needing to think about synchronization primitives across multiple cores. Mm -hmm. Whereas with concurrency, you are limited to the issues that arise only when interleaving jobs. So the kind of the nature of the synchronization primitives needed is quite different. If you think about normal computer programs that run in sequence, you know, you're essentially interleaving one statement after another. I mean, of course, it's a little bit confusing to think about it like that. But in that sense, the dependencies just follow naturally from the sequential processing. If you tried to run every statement, like every line of a computer program on a different CPU core, you would need to synchronize each individual line. Thinking about that, I guess, if you look at how concurrency and parallelism affect the models of computation, I think that it's more useful to think about concurrency as just interleaving jobs on a single mm. piece of hardware versus parallelism, which introduces a whole level of additional kind of complexity with regards to synchronization. So it's like a juggler. Yeah, so you have a juggler and he's juggling 10 balls. That's concurrency. And you have 10 jugglers and they're juggling one ball each. That's parallelism. You can take any like real world situation where like one person is doing like multiple things and you just multiply it by the you know number of people and that's parallelism. But there's no reason why you can't have 10 people juggling 10 balls each and then you have like a mixed model. But I think it's, it's useful to have terms mm -hmm. that explicitly refer to one person juggling 10 balls yeah. and 10 people juggling one ball. Mm -hmm. To me, like, it's useful to have that separation. Yeah. Otherwise, like, we just have this huge ambiguity when yeah. we're talking about it. Got it. So when, let's say someone is first learning about how to improve the performance of their application, it sounds like you would suggest they first start with concurrency because then they don't have to worry about the synchronization and that sort of thing. That is quite a interesting question in the sense that if you've got a program and you want to improve the performance, some programs naturally lend themselves to being broken into separate pieces. For example, when you run commands in a Unix system and you pipe the output from one command to the input of another command, naturally those commands, because they are, they are interfacing just with a pipe that's communicating from one process to the next, those two processes can run completely in parallel. And you get that essentially for free. Like you don't need mm -hmm. to think about it. Whereas when you think about a program and they don't necessarily know how to scale it up, you don't want to impose on them all the overhead of saying, well, you could have like multiple threads and then you need to basically load your configuration and then split your work up into like multiple separate pieces, you know, make a, a thread for each piece of work and then at the end combine it all back together like a MapReduce approach. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately uh, parallelism can sometimes be super easy for people to use and sometimes it becomes super complicated. It just depends on the kind of problem you're trying to solve. And in the same vein, I guess, like concurrency is the same kind of thing because it really depends like on the kind of problem you're trying to solve. For example, concurrency is something which will, in the case of like async, for example, it is feasible to take a program which is largely sequential and improve the scalability of it when you are dealing with a certain kind of use case, like a web server, which is processing independent requests. If you have a web server that's processing independent requests, those requests can run independently of each other. But so whether you use threads or parallelism or concurrency to improve the performance is largely hidden from the user so that they, again, don't need to know so much which approach is being used to improve the performance of their code. But sometimes you get to the point where you have a program where uh, these issues do become intertwined with the logic of the code. So in that situation, then you do need to be aware of like how parallelism is affecting your code, whether you're doing locking correctly, 
Or if you're using kind of a more concurrent style approach, like how is the event-driven system working? Are you using callbacks or async await or some other like approach? So like, you know, it really depends. At, at some level, you can write programs and you can utilize hardware resources more efficiently without necessarily any cognitive overhead in terms of how you're writing your code. And in other situations, you, your code is going to be intimately aware of like how it's using those resources. And, and that's probably the more tricky situation irrespective of whether you use parallelism or concurrency. So I guess in a lot of cases, the developer can rely on, I guess, components that have already been built. Like, you know, for example, you wrote the async library, um, people who are using a framework like Rails, they're built on top of a web server like Puma, which already uses threads. And so in a lot of cases, the developer doesn't necessarily have to worry about how the concurrency or how the parallelism is being accomplished because that part has been packaged up so that the developer doesn't work with it directly. Absolutely. So in my mind, when I'm looking at how to solve these issues, I'm thinking, what kind of concerns should the developer have in their mind when they're writing this code? Do they want to think about how the code is being scaled up, or do they just want to get on with writing their code in the most logical way possible? And I think that that is kind of um, the key difference between parallelism and concurrency with respect to programming models, uh, because ultimately parallelism introduces a lot of uh, potential issues that people may not even be aware of when they're writing code. And that, that ultimately um, is going to become more of a problem with Ruby as we embrace things like JRuby and Truffle Ruby, where we have actual threads. One of the things I've been looking at recently is uh, I grabbed a copy of the RubyGems database and I looked at the top 10,000 gems by download count. And then I looked at those gems and analyzed the source code and I looked at which gems have like mutex thread or synchronized keywords in the code somewhere. And then out of that list, uh, I just went through them and I looked at um, the various uh, usage of mutex, thread, and synchronized primitives. It was not a pretty picture. In um, about the 10 gems that I looked at, I found probably about half of them have threading issues, which are relatively trivial to encounter in, mm. you know, in just typical situations. So I guess the concern there is like systems like Puma where you have multiple threads serving requests, are they safe? And CRuby, which is the common interpreter used by most people these days, uh, has something called the global VM log. And that prevents multiple lines of Ruby executing simultaneously, like in parallel. So you, you're kind of restricted to a form of concurrency with CRuby, even though it appears to have multiple threads. So because of that, developers who write code, they can have threading issues, but they don't realize it. or it's not, it's not apparent that there are issues because the code appears to work. But then you run that code on JRuby or Truffle Ruby or just basically any implementation of Ruby that has real threads and the whole thing just falls to pieces. So, so, so that, is the, that is the problem really. Like parallelism just introduces too many concerns without good enough isolation. And by isolation, I mean avoiding shared global state. Uh, you know, it's just very, very tricky for developers to build, build systems that are actually robust and reliable. And this shared global state you're referring to, you were talking about mutexes and things like that, and those are, are locks to attempt to prevent different threads from touching the same global state at the same yeah, time? Yeah, so 
I guess what I can do is I just briefly explain uh, what a mutex is for and and the kind of situations I saw it being used in the code that I looked at. So in a code in a code base where you have say a shared mutable state. So what I mean by that is you might have you you have an operation and that operation is expensive, and so you want to cache the results of that operation so that subsequent parts of your program that might want to do the same operation don't have to recompute that. So like uh, an example mm-hmm. might be. Um, looking up a remote web service and pulling down some data and then caching it. So what you would do is you would have like a hash table and you would compute a hash key. It could be the URL of the request plus maybe the parameters that you're posting. And the value of that would be the result of that request, for example. And maybe that request takes like 30 seconds or something. Um, Who knows? It's a slow request. So you build this cache and then you deploy that um, using Puma. And now you have eight threads maybe sharing that global cache. So the problem is, like, if two threads interleave their operations, so what that means is you have two threads making the same request, they both check to see if the key is in the cache, it's not. So they both make the same request, and then they come back and they're trying to write their results into the cache. That operation is not thread safe. And so that can cause the cache to actually become irreparably damaged. Like, internally, the data structure in the computer will become, like, damaged. Mm. And that could cause the, the program to crash. The idea is that those threads, the operation should be mutually exclusive. So a mutex is just short for mutually exclusive. And what that means is in your operation, you're fetching the remote resource and putting it into the cache, you put a mutex around that. So what that means is only one thread can enter that part of the program at a time. And so that prevents these kinds of collisions from occurring in your program and, and causing these uh, unexpected side effects or crashes or, or whatever else disastrous can happen. So uh, ultimately, uh, with a shared global state, you would put a mutex around it. And what I saw in the code that I analyzed was uh, mostly a very poor implementation of this kind of uh, shared global state. There there are other reasons why it's bad. We can talk about them in a bit, but I guess uh, I'll give a specific example. One of the ones I was looking at recently was Nokogiri, which is a very popular gem for parsing XML. And that gem, when you do a CSS query on a document, it maps that into an XPath selector, and then the XPath selector is cached. So it caches your CSS selector string as the hash key, and the XPath is the, the value that's computed. I guess that process is like a little bit slow. It's going to parse the CSS and turn it into like some AST and then turn it into an XPath. So it's, yeah, it's a little bit slow. They want it to be fast. They have this operation which says uh, it's a block that says without cache, and inside that, they basically switch caching off, and then they do the operation and they switch caching back on. And when caching is switched off, the code path that goes to the mutex is disabled. The problem is, if two threads call that without cache function and they interleave the switching off and switching on, the first thread switches it off, then the second thread comes and goes, oh, it's switched off, so I'm going to, you know, I'm fine. And then the the first thread switches it back on and the second thread goes, well, it was switched off when I started, so I'm going to switch it off now, I'm done. So you start off with the cache enabled, these two threads interact, and then the cache is just permanently disabled. And so you just end up with situations, uh, you know, variations on these kind of race conditions. And uh, I have to say, like, it's, it's a little bit shocking to see how many gems have these kinds of issues. And I guess they're relatively trivial to fix, but the reality is they're out there and they're out in production code right now. So that's the problem. And is the reason why this hasn't been an issue so far specifically because of the the global VM lock you mentioned before? Like, even though these aren't Threads save because only one thing can execute at a time. We're not getting a seg fault when these two things are trying to access the same thing. I've only tested about five different gems, 
And of those five gems, I was not able to get a seg fault yet, although I did get some pretty unusual results in JRuby. Coming to your, back to your question, yes, the main reason why a lot of these issues aren't so obvious is because CRuby does impose a kind of form of concurrency or mutual exclusion on Ruby code. So th there are definitely situations where I've seen it break in CRuby as well. Um, I was recently looking at another one. So I was looking at Faraday. And Faraday, they have a mutex, so which is good. And they use that to lock around setting up their connection structures. Because Faraday is, is, is supposed to be thread safe. Um, you can okay. use it in any thread. And Faraday is a HTTP client? That's correct. Yeah, sorry, I should okay. have mentioned that. Okay. And what they have is they, they have an instance variable called middleware mutex. And they write uh, at symbol middleware mutex or equals begin require monitor monitor.new. Monitor is a form of reentrant mutex. It means that if you lock it once, you can lock it again in the same thread and it won't block. And because they, they lazily initialize the mutex, if you hit that function with, like, say, 10 threads, you either have one thread which creates the mutex and successfully lazily initializes it to the instance variable, or if you're really unlucky, all 10 threads lazily initialize their own mutexes 10 times and you have 10 mm. separate mutexes. Uh. And <laughs> it's like, you know, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that sort of code flow, that, that can occur on CRuby as well as JRuby and mm -hmm. Truffle Ruby. You, you're more likely to see it on Truffle Ruby and JRuby just because they, they don't have the GVL. So they, they don't have any form of implicit form of mutual exclusion on Ruby code. So, you know, you know I guess ultimately if you're using Faraday and you're expecting stuff like this to work correctly, you know, that one in a million time that your app crashes and you don't know why, maybe it's that. I mean, who knows? <laughs> These issues are just super insidious. They cause very, very difficult to diagnose problems. So parallelism, I think, you know, to, to try and put like a summary on that is just something which introduces so many issues and we're just scratching the surface really uh, with regards to the kinds of problems that exist. So in... All of these cases, the problem kind of stemmed from needing to use a mutex. And in a lot of these cases, I'm guessing that there is some kind of shared collection. That's correct. Shared, shared global state is basically the key that holds together all of these problems. So yeah, I think ultimately what it comes down to is if you have a gem or a library that has shared global state, you need to be incredibly careful with how that works in a multi-threaded environment because the chance of it being wrong is probably a lot higher than the chance of it being correct, <laughs> just based mm, on my experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just because it's so easy to miss something or make a mistake because yeah, it's Yeah, you just, you just have to miss one thing and then something disastrous can happen. It, it doesn't take a lot. That's the problem with parallelism is that ultimately any kind of shared mutable state can potentially introduce these issues. And actually, it's not just even that, but actually the interaction between different parts of your code is very difficult to reason about. There was one fragment of code in the AWS gem. I was trying to figure out if I could get it to deadlock. Uh, any code that takes a log, like goes mutex.synchronize, mm -hmm. and then yields back to user code can deadlock. Because if you don't have a reentrant mutex, like if you're not using a monitor, Mm -hmm. then what can happen is you you lock your mutex and then you call the user code and then the user code essentially tries to go back into that code, sorry, the, the code that has the mutex and it tries to lock it again. And as soon as you do that, you have instant deadlock. The, the program will just simply stop working. 
Fortunately, I think in Ruby, it will just crash. It won't just let hang. But there's lots of different ways parallelism can create problems. And if you look at how people are using Ruby in the real world, you start to realize things like Unicorn, where you have a single process, is not such a bad idea. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. using multiple threads in Ruby is probably more hassle than it's worth. And in the case of Unicorn, they're spawning multiple processes, right? And so yeah. they they don't have any kind of shared state. Is that why they, they don't run into the same problem? Yeah, so I guess with Unicorn, the way that that web server works, and feel free to correct me if, if you know I'm wrong, but it loads your application and then it forks a number of mm-hmm. child processes. And then those processes essentially just handle one request at a time. And so the, the value of that, I guess, is that you don't have any parallelism issues. Like there's no chance of two threads trying to access the same the same shared state because every process has its own copy of memory. Mm-hmm. And so in the case that you needed to share some kind of state amongst your different processes, it would have to be through like a separate application, like say um, like a database or something like Redis. That's yeah, yeah, Redis, a database, even a Unix pipe would be okay. So I guess... Go is a language which tries to solve this problem by forcing uh, or by encouraging people to use channels. And so a channel is a sort of a communication between two Go routines where you can send objects and information between them. But it's not shared mutable state because basically when the object goes in one end of the channel, it gets serialized and comes out the other end. And so the two processes, they can't clobber each other's data. And Erlang uses the same approach, actually. Erlang has a way of communicating between lightweight processes uh, in a similar fashion to avoid any kind of issue with shared global state. And I think if you look at where Ruby's going, maybe guilds or whatever they're going to end up being called, it's the same kind of model. It's, it's trying to avoid having any chance of shared mutable state just because basically uh, experience shows us it's impossible to, to deal with it in general. So then all these processes would have to, I guess it would have to be very chatty you know they would all have to kind of send messages to one yeah. another to duplicate the um i mean there are definitely ad- overheads with that i mean if you have a specific kind of problem and you can isolate your problem in the runtime of the problem to a specific set of circumstances then using threads can be a great solution and can scale very well mm-hmm. but just for general purpose code where you have people who aren't necessarily aware of the issues uh you don't want to necessarily expose them to all that pain and frustration. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Ultimately, like I think with the lightweight process model, you get most of the benefits of scalability with very few of the pain points. And that's not to say you can't achieve that. Um, so obviously with Go and Erlang, you have specific semantics and syntax in the language to support that. But using uh, a message bus or Redis or a database for communicating between processes is a totally fine way to do it. Like it might not be as efficient as something which is built directly into a language, which and the language and the runtime is designed around that form of concurrency and mm-hmm. parallelism. But it's it's not a big deal. Like you can do it. So I guess in the case of Go and Erlang, they have a runtime that's very much built around this concept of lightweight processes and message passing and with something like Ruby where that's not built into the runtime, instead of having the runtime managed processes, you would just spawn operating system processes and talk between them with a message bus or something else like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you look at how Ruby is positioned right now, obviously threads are the predominant model for achieving scalability. Whether that is a good idea or not, I think we can show that it's not 
actually that great. It might be okay in practice if you can avoid kind of pitfalls. But, you know, what my analysis showed me is that a lot of these gems that people are using that are super popular, they have potentially thread safety issues. And I've only looked at 10 of them. What about the other 10,000? <laughs> it's quite <Yeah>. concerning. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I think a different approach is needed for Ruby. And I think that's what kind of brought me to async. And when I sort of thought about how do we solve these problems, the reason why I built async was because I got frustrated with celluloid. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I really like the ideas behind celluloid. Um, but celluloid was very, very difficult to test because it, dependent on shared global state. And if you had one spec fail, it wouldn't necessarily clean up the shared global state that it left behind. Like you'd have actors that were still sitting in the global uh, namespace. Could you um, kind of briefly explain what, what Celluloid is? Yeah, so Celluloid, it was a very popular framework for Ruby actor-based concurrency. And I guess even some form of parallelism as well, because you could run them on separate threads. The way that it works is you have objects and those objects have methods. And when you call a method on an object, it's not synchronous, it's asynchronous. And so what that means is when you go object.do something, what you're actually doing is you're making a little message, you are packaging up all the arguments into that message, and you're putting it into that object's mailbox. And then that object, the remote object, is basically polling on its mailbox saying, did a message come in, did a message come in, did a message come in? When it gets a message, it will do the work and then it, if, it, if required, it will post a response back to the object. And so it runs in a way which allows those objects to operate in parallel. So if you have like a lot of objects, you know, they can work together to solve problems and they can run in parallel. They run independently. And, and if one object crashes, you can restart it. And so there's some uh, robustness guarantees as well. It was quite popular. So on the surface, it kind of sounds a bit like the Go channels or... Erlang's processes um, just kind of brought into Ruby. Does that does that sound correct? Um, to a certain extent, I guess the the detail of how these systems fit together makes them different. And so Erlang and Go routines, Erlang with its lightweight processes, Go with its Go routines, and Celluloid with its actors, and they're they're all similar. They all try and solve the same kind of class of problems, but the way they go around doing it is quite different. And the semantics is where they differ quite significantly in terms of like, you know, how you handle robustness issues, how you handle failures, you know, how you handle like state and state transitions. All those kinds of things can be quite different between those systems. And in the case of celluloid, you were you were talking about there were problems with shared global state. Like how is that working in the context of celluloid? In celluloid, when you create an actor and you instantiate it, it becomes part of the Ruby process. So it becomes global state and you can communicate with it. And when you're running specs, you kind of want to go, okay, set up a set of parameters for my spec. Like, you know, it could be you load a configuration file or you prepare your object in a certain state. And then you essentially do something and test that the result was what you wanted. And ideally, if you run that spec, uh, it's isolated so that if you run the spec and it fails, it won't impact like some other subsequent spec in the case of like running tests. So celluloid those actors would sit in the global namespace. And so if, if you were trying to test them, you had to do a lot of scaffolding to sort of spin them up and tear them down at the end of the spec. There was no kind of implicit state management or lifecycle management in that. And a big thing for me that I think trips up um, a lot of users is lifecycle management. What I mean by lifecycle management is creating an object, using an object, and getting rid of an object. And surprisingly enough, a lot of code doesn't do that very well. An example would be code that, 
connects a socket to a remote system, communicates with it, and then doesn't close it, and then expects the garbage collector to go and close that when it goes out of scope. In my mind, a lot of that stuff should be more explicit because I think it avoids a lot of potential issues and potential bugs. Uh, so lifecycle management is super important, and I think Celluloid really lacked a good model for lifecycle management. That kind of brings us to you created a new library called Async, which I believe is centered around concurrency. So could you kind of go into what sort of differences are in Async, or how does Async work and how does it compare and, and that sort of thing? At a certain point, uh, I was maintaining Celluloid I.O., which is an event-driven I.O. reactor which could operate inside a Celluloid actor. And I was maintaining that because I was building a tool called RubyDNS. And RubyDNS is a Ruby client and server uh, DNS implementation. You can use it for doing all sorts of crazy things. Like uh, one of the examples is a DNS server that hooks up to Wikipedia. So if you um, query the DNS server for a keyword, it will return the first paragraph from Wikipedia. And I was just interested in like, how do you scale it up? Like, how do you build um, something in Ruby that is that makes sense and is scalable um, with a you know straightforward logical code? And we almost managed to get to a 1.0 release, sort of a major release of Celluloid IO that that would support that. And I had Ruby DNS all lined up to go, and then there were just specs in Ruby DNS that would just randomly crash for no obvious reason, basically because of um, issues in Celluloid or Celluloid IO. And I could not fix those issues. And at some point, I think like after about six months of just like trying to make that work, I was like, this is crazy. Like this is, we're never going to fix these issues. <laughs> we're going around in circles. Yeah. So at that point, I was like, okay, I'm sick of like not being in control of like the thing which underpins Ruby DNS. I'm just going to build something. It can't be that hard. So that was when Async was born. Async was kind of the product of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> so what Async is, is it's kind of, it takes what I think were the best parts of Celluloid and plus a life cycle, like a model for life cycle that makes sense in the scope of Ruby and then turns that into something which I could run Ruby DNS on top of and run my specs and not have them crash and run just be super reliable, basically. So async essentially is just a reactor which lets you do things like non-blocking I.O. and timers. And then on top of that, everything else sits like uh, sockets and networking and so on and so forth. Then on top of that is Ruby DNS, which is essentially just doing network uh, I.O. And I think, actually, now that I think of it, the, the, the motivation was actually that Wikipedia um, DNS because what, what actually happened was I was using, I can't remember if it was with Event Machine or Celluloid, but I wanted to have a DNS server that could receive the request for like cats.wikipedia. Okay. And then it would do a web request to Wikipedia's API, which would get back the first paragraph. And it turned out that there were no there was no way to combine that web request with the DNS server because the web request, I think I was using like REST client, that, that just assumed like a multi-threaded environment. So that request would block. Uh, and then okay. my Ruby DNS, which was running either on Event Machine or Celluloid, it was non-blocking. So it was event-driven. So as soon as you would have one request come in that would do that web request, the whole thing would just lock up for the duration of the uh, web request. No other request could be processed at the same okay. time. And so I was just like, this is crazy. Like, we can't take these two components and make them work together. I, you know, I'd be, have to go from event-driven back to, like, multi-threads. And, like, you can't spawn one thread per DNS query. It's insane. Like, it would just never scale up. 
Yeah. So I was just like, there's got to be like a better way to like solve this problem and combine all these pieces. And I think, you know, ultimately that's what led to async was how do you build something which lets you do this? And now Ruby DNS <laughs> can do it. You can do that kind of thing. <laughs> you can have a DNS server that will do event-driven queries come in, they're event-driven. And then if you do like a web request, then that is also part of that event loop so it won't block other requests. Yeah, so it sounds like the one of the big frustrations came out of the fact that you were working with something that used an event loop and then to do other parts of work, uh, you were using a library that was expecting threads and the two just just don't work well together. So could you kind of talk a little bit more about what an event loop is and what it is in relation to non-blocking I.O. and when you would use that instead of threads? Right, it's a really good question. So what an event loop comes down to is literally just a loop. And in that loop, you can do a couple of different things. It really depends on what your goals are. If we just focus on the simplest kind of event loop, which would just be timers, you have a piece of code, like your own code that you want to run, and you want to say, after three seconds, do this thing. And so what your loop is going to be doing is it's going to be saying, I have a list of things that the user uh, wants to do. And one of those things is waiting for three seconds and then doing some stuff. So essentially, what your event loop would look like is a loop, which would basically say, okay, I have a list of timers, and the one that's going to expire the soonest is this one for three seconds. So I'm going to sleep for three seconds. And after three seconds, I'm going to go back to the user's code. And that can be through a callback or some other approach we can probably talk about later about how Fiverr's work, but we'll just we'll just assume we're using callbacks. Mm -hmm. So that, that is really the simplest event loop. So what's happening is you are looking at some list of timeouts, you are choosing the one that times out the soonest, and then you are sleeping for that duration. After that duration is expired, you resume the user's code. If the user wants to do something more advanced, for example, networking, then you need to incorporate elements of what kind of things can I read from and what kind of things can I write to? So a typical networking operation would be reading some data, doing some processing and writing a result back out, for example. So network latency is normally massive, like on the order of milliseconds. And so what would happen is you would basically have a socket which is connected to something or listening for a connection to come in. Then you would read, you would try and read from that socket. Now, in the case of multiple threads, that operation is a blocking operation. So what that means is a thread goes to sleep until there's data available to, to be read on that socket. While that thread is sleeping, it's not using a CPU so other threads can run. And the main point is that you can also do the same thing in a non-blocking fashion in the reactor so that when you try and read from a socket, rather than sleeping in the operating system waiting for data to be available, you go to the reactor and say, hey, I want to register my interest in this socket tell me when it's readable and call me once once it is readable. And so the, basically you schedule that IO into the reactor. The reactor does every other operation that it can do until it comes back and the operating system says, hey, there's data available for you. And the reactor will then resume that code, in this case, via a callback. And so the value in that, I guess, ultimately is that the overhead is a lot less, potentially. The event loop is just really looping over and over again. In the case of async, there's timers, jobs, and... IO. And those three things are basically interleaved in a way which uh, minimizes latency. And then the user code essentially is just waiting until the operation can continue. And when it can continue, it will resume. In the meantime, if you're just waiting, then other tasks will run. And if no task can run, it's literally just sleeping in the operating system waiting for something to happen. And when you're making these operating system calls, like for example, for IO, and you were saying uh, you have some kind of callback where let's say you want to read a file and the operating system is going to let you know when the file has been read or when it has a portion ready for you. 
are you able to execute you know your Ruby code at the same time while the operating system is doing that kind of work? Yeah, so essentially in async and even in general run loops, I guess, you will schedule multiple tasks. Those tasks run concurrently. So while one task might be waiting for an IO operation, another task could be waiting on a timer, and another task could be executing like a loop, like parsing some data or something. Now, because they run concurrently, those tasks can never run in parallel. It's not a form of parallelism. They're always scheduled one after the other based on the availability of data or a timer or something something else, some other event in the event loop. Essentially, those tasks are user-driven. And in the case of like a web server, for example, every request would be its own task. And so those tasks, those requests, while they never run in parallel, they will run in concurrently. So a typical example would be receiving a request and the user is posting an image, like a two megabyte image. It could take maybe, I don't know, a few seconds to upload that data. So while that one task is just waiting for the data to come in, another task can be executing and processing some other part of the, you know, another request or a different request for a different user. Mm-hmm. So essentially those, those tasks are the core abstraction by which those units of work are executed independently. And the event loop essentially multiplexes between them. Is it your async code that has a scheduler built in that's deciding when each task should run, or, or how does it determine that? So the event loop, like I said, is just it's literally a loop which is going around in a circle. And the the core part again is like the timers and the um, list of outstanding jobs that will just be resumed by nature of them being outstanding. And finally, the core part is the I/O and the I/O operation waiting for like an event to occur, there are various different ways you can implement that. So uh, the most typical one is io.select. And io.select takes four arguments. Uh, and the most important ones are the first two and the last one. The first two is a list of sockets you want to know if those sockets have data available. The second one is a list of sockets and you want to know if those sockets can be written to. So like the buffer is empty. Obviously, the operating system has a buffer and that data is going out across the network. And if you put too much data in there, you can't put any more. And the final argument is the timeout, which is how long it will wait for any of those events to occur, like something to become readable or something to become writable. So IO select is kind of the most basic thing. And so what you do is you slot that in there into the event loop, and you basically say, I have a list of tasks which are waiting on IO, like read, like for it to become readable. I have a list of tasks which are waiting for IO to become writable. And I have a list of tasks which are waiting on timers, and the shortest timer is like, I don't know, 100 milliseconds. So what you will do is you'll take all those readable IOs and put them in the first argument. You'll take all the writable IOs and put them in the second argument. You'll take the timeout and put it in the last argument. And what that operation will do is it's like a sleep, but essentially if any events occur on those sockets, it will wake up immediately and you can resume the user's code from that point. Mm. And so that just sits in the event loop and the event loop spins around and around and around and, and executes that over and over again. And um, if there's no timeouts, then you just you sleep forever until some network event occurs. So in a way, it's it's almost like the operating system call, the IO select call is. I don't know if you would call that scheduling, but it's sort of deciding when your um, function should wake up and start receiving data. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the operating system probably has a certain amount of variability with regards to network data and and when that comes in and how it, how it wakes things up. Mm-hmm. 
One of the things that I have thought about a lot with async is how to make it as predictable as possible. I think ultimately the way to look at it is that predictability in code is good. Like if you write a program and you expect it to execute one instruction after another, like one line of code after another, like that's kind of a normal expectation. And even if things are running out of order, it's nice to have some cognitive model of how those things fit together. So when you write your program and you have like you have two tasks and they're executing, so you have like maybe a task and it's making a child task. In async, there is one guarantee which I've found quite useful. And it's when a parent spawns a child task, that child task will run until the first blocking operation occurs and then it will go back to the parent. Mm. So because of that, you can make certain assumptions about how the code behaves and you can have a cognitive model which... You know, when you're debugging code, it really helps if you have a cognitive model for how things are fitting together. And I guess I've tried to avoid getting too far away from sequential code because I think that is when you start making things really complicated. Um, so async kind of tries to keep things as simple as possible, as sequential as possible. And these points where you have non-determinism, you know, we, I, I guess ultimately try and minimize the chance of that making the code complicated to understand. Yeah, I mean, it sort of reminds me of when you run a debugger against multi-threaded code and you're trying to step line by line and it's kind of like jumping from thread to thread and it's really yeah. hard to know, okay, where am I going next? Absolutely. With async, there are certain elements of async which are deterministic. And I think one thing I've been thinking about recently is there are some elements of async which are non-deterministic. And because you kind of get uh, this sense of, oh, I understand what's going, I understand like how this is working, how it fits together. Sometimes when you have situations when that non-determinism creeps in and, and <laughs> causes some kind of issue. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think sometimes it's unavoidable. You know, sometimes you need to introduce non-determinism. It's just part of the program. And that, to me, I was thinking about comparing async versus async await. So <laughs> this is very confusing. Mm -hmm. Async uses fibers, which I can explain in a moment. And there's another pattern called async await. And they're kind of the opposite sides of the same coin. Async await, you basically use keywords. And those keywords are used to indicate operations which may introduce non-determinism into your program. Uh, if you try and read from a socket, you may end up executing some other code while that data is uh, coming into the system, and then you'll be resumed back at that point. So like, if you have global mutable state in async, from line to line, you can't necessarily make assumptions about that global mutable state unless you put some kind of uh, semaphore or mutex around it. Mm -hmm. In async await, you also can't make the same assumptions, but you have explicit points at which non-determinism is introduced, and those points are clearly shown by the use of those keywords. And so in... The opposite situation with, with async is you don't have those keywords. And so that, to me, like it's, it's valuable because you don't overload the language with a lot of extra syntax and you don't have to explain to users this is this extra syntax. And in fact, what's really interesting is that you can actually retrofit, like I've played around with retrofitting existing code bases with async. And a lot of the time, it just works. Like a lot of the time, you can take an existing code base and you can stick it into an async reactor and inject the appropriate concurrency primitives and it will just work, which is really amazing to me. Mm. Uh, but obviously you can't do the same with async await because you have that extra syntax and extra keywords you need to inject into your code. So I think coming back to that main point is like just not making the code too complicated and trying to keep things as sequential as possible, 
but there's definitely um, this nature of non-determinism and you can't avoid that with something naturally which is <laughs> involving like event loops and, yeah. and event-driven sort of uh, kind of callbacks or whatever you want to whatever like approach you want to take, I guess. Right, but you can at least minimize the surface that you have no control over, right? Absolutely, and I think that's what I've tried to do with async and, and the nature of that discussion about synchronous versus non-determinism execution. At every point, I'm kind of thinking, okay, how do we actually make this easier for the user and try and avoid running into some common pitfalls? But but I have to admit, like it's 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 exciting. Like Sometimes you do still have issues. It's non-trivial. Like any kind of concurrency, any kind of asynchronicity, it's non-trivial. And that's why I think things like Perma and Falcon, which try and isolate the user from that complexity, I think they are the way to go. But again, coming back to that discussion, like threads just, there are too many situations where threads introduce too many problems. And I think the, the de facto is sequential sequential code running on a single thread or, you know, like a single process. Uh, that, that is kind of the de facto concurrency model that people understand. And anything more complicated than that is kind of just, <laughs> it's just a disaster waiting to happen. So yeah, yeah I, I'm very kind of aware of that and I'm trying to figure out if there's ways to make that some, you know, Ruby is Ruby and we appreciate Ruby for being uh, an awesome language for a lot of different reasons. And I think uh, a certain kind of semantic simplicity that Ruby has, you know, I've tried to embrace it and I think. One of the things that I've noticed, you know, outside of Ruby, whether it's JavaScript or C Sharp or like you were talking earlier about Erlang and Go, uh, they all have some form of concurrency primitives that are built you know, on top of threads or on top of a reactor. And it seems like everyone's trying to solve this problem to try and get people away from manually spawning processes, manually spawning threads. But and you know, it's, it's kind of gone in the opposite direction with Node.js because they made workers, which are isolated child processes that communicate using some kind of channel type setup. So I think what's interesting is that Node.js, just from ignoring all the semantic issues with JavaScript, the semantic model of how Node.js executes is a really good model because it's a single-threaded event, asynchronous event loop. And in my mind, that is the best balance between user-facing complexity and scalability. Like I don't think you can really get much better than that without compromising one of those two aspects. But in the end, like if you look at what Node.js has done, is they've, they've basically had enough uh, situations where having true parallelism was critical that they had to introduce some extra concept, which was essentially this worker concept where you can basically spin up child processes. And I think what's fascinating about that is that it shows that event loops aren't sort of a one and only solution. I'm, I'm often in awe at the original creators of Unix for how insightful they were about the kind of um, problems people would need to solve. And, you know, the way that processes, threads, and all of that stuff fits together, the more I dig into it, the more in awe I am at, at how it all works. And I, I think what's interesting is that if you look, there's kind of this cycle of reinventing the wheel that seems to happen sort of every 10 or 20, oh yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> People are sort of rediscovering what was already discovered. For sure. I mean, fibers aren't new. Uh, it's not like I like came up with that concept at all. Like, I mean... Um, the original uh, use case of fibers. Actually, I said I would talk about fibers. So, what, is, is it worth like going over that? Yeah, let's um, let's kind of go into that, and so that we kind of get an understanding of where you're coming from. So, async, like I said, it's the opposite side of the coin to a system like async await. Async await is just a kind of a syntactic sugar 
over callbacks. So when you write async await inside a function, what happens is when that function is compiled, like by the interpreter into like some kind of bytecode, it's actually transformed into a state machine. And well, this is the most common way it's done. And what happens is your function has like an extra argument. And that argument is where to go to when you come back into the function. And so essentially, async await as a transform of your function into callback style approach. If you look at callbacks, I think essentially callbacks are a way of dealing with events that occur in a system. But the problem with callbacks is they lose all the context in which the sequential flow of those events occurred. So if you're trying to do some complicated process, what you end up having to do is build this ginormous state machine, which takes the callbacks and feeds those events into the state machine and the state machine produces some meaningful output. And that is very, very error prone. That the chance of that causing problems is, is very, very high. And so async await manually generates that state machine for you from your mm -hmm. sequential code. So you write sequential code, you put in these points where you can have non-blocking operations, and then that gets transformed into a giant state machine, which then gets run by the event loop. The alternative to that is to use something like a fiber. And a fiber is a, the best way I've seen it described is we know what a routine is, like a function or a method. And the general term for that is routine. And a routine is something which has a call operation, which lets you go to the top of the routine or method or function, you start executing it. And at some point, or if you just run off the end, you return back to the caller. So you have these two, you have a routine and you have these two operations, call and return. Then you have what's called a coroutine. And a coroutine has this call and return operation, but it's a superset of a routine. It also has resume and yield. And what resume and yield do semantically is when you call a function, you execute some of it and you get to a certain point and you can call yield. And that yield goes back to the caller, but it doesn't lose the state of the function where it was. All the local values stay the same. When you um, call resume on that method, it will go back to the point where it last called yield and all mm -hmm. the state will be as it was. Then it will continue executing until you get to return and then it will exit and that will be the end of that method invocation. So a fiber is essentially captures that state of the function execution in its own stack. So you take a coroutine and the, the semantic model of a coroutine and you attach uh, to that a stack and so when you enter a function that is a fiber, it allocates a stack for its own behavior and all its locals and anything else it calls. And when you call yield operation, what that does is it, it switches the stack to the stack that it came from. So basically it's a stack swapping operation. Mm. And so basically all that's happening is that call is just literally the call instruction on your CPU. And then yield becomes like a return, but you swap the stack at the same time. And then resume is like a call, but you swap the stack. And then return, you deallocate the stack because you're done with them. Um, so fibers, they're almost identical to a thread, but the context switching is controlled by the user of the fiber rather than the operating system, which transparently decides, oh, your time is up. I'm going to do something else now. Right. And so the benefit is that it's composability and determinism. You know uh, how the program is going to behave because you explicitly have these points where you schedule the operations to suspend and, and resume. So fibers are used by async to manage those individual tasks. Every task in async is backed by a fiber. So your code inside a task executes sequentially and it, it just runs 
like you'd expect. And those tasks that are running in concurrent fashion, they are actually fibers, they're backed by a fiber. And so when you perform an IO operation that would block, you actually end up calling uh, fiber.yield. And fiber.yield goes back to the reactor. And when the reactor says your operation is ready to continue, the operating system says that, the event loop calls fiber.resume and it will go back into your task where you left off and keep on executing. So, you, so it's, it's another way of um, avoiding the, the ginormous state machine that you have with callbacks. But I think it's a bit more predictable than async await and you avoid all the syntax overhead. So they're really just two sides of the same coin. But I think that they have different trade-offs and I prefer the trade-offs of fibers. You have these functions that kind of have more information about themselves and can maintain their own state. And like you were saying, that allows you to write library code um, that's simpler in order to kind of switch between all these different functions that are running and resume them. Um, whereas in the case of the async await keywords, the you know the library code that needs to be written to kind of jump between all of these traditional functions has to be a lot more complicated and, and possibly a lot less predictable. Yeah, I mean that's a really good point. I think it doesn't. You don't have to look very far to see the effort that goes on in the Rust ecosystem or the Node.js ecosystem adapting all the libraries to support promises and async await and all the adapter patterns they use to turn promises into async await and vice versa. And uh, uh, actually, I ran into this bug recently. I was using GitHub Actions and it turns out there's no built-in asynchronous, you know, the, in Ruby you have like the system method which executes mm -hmm. uh, something using the shell. Right. And there's just, there's no built-in Node.js method, which works in a way that is async. You have to use like a callback or something. And it's just, you know, so you end up uh, like wrapping this in a promise. And, mm -hmm. you know, 30 lines of code later, you have this thing which you're not even sure if it works correctly. Right. <laughs> it's surprising <laughs> me uh, a lot. So I think the, the great thing about using fibers is that the code does not need to be modified in order to run in a concurrent fashion. And like I said, if you take uh, existing code and you put it into an async task and you inject the right primitives, like for example, one example I'll give you that I've tested myself is net HTTP, their standard lib code from Ruby. That uh, net HTTP, if you inject, I've made some wrapper classes. If you inject those wrapper classes into the module, like if you just literally go like net colon colon HTTP colon colon TCP socket equals async IO wrapper TCP socket, mm. then net HTTP becomes just completely asynchronous, uh. um, which I think is amazing because it doesn't require any additional keywords or changes to net HTTP, it just works. And to me, the value of that is massive because you can just take any code base in theory and, and use it in async and have it become asynchronous. The same applies to um, SQL and Active Record, which are some areas I've been working on. Active Record is a little bit tricky because Active Record makes a lot of assumptions about threads. So when I've tried to make that work, I've had to use monkey patching, which is unfortunate. In theory, like I've got examples where I've done benchmarks between Puma and Falcon, and all I've done is I've used an asynchronous Postgres connection. And the scalability with Falcon and async Postgres is just crazy compared to Puma. And of course, you don't expect that in the real world to be as like a big of an improvement. But you know, it's not uncommon to have database queries that take sort of a few hundred milliseconds. And there's no reason why you shouldn't be servicing other you know, requests in the meantime. So you mm -hmm. can definitely improve scalability, th scalability through that approach. The other one that was really fascinating to me was um, Redis RB. So I made a pull request to Redis because Redis RB supports this driver abstraction where you can basically swap in something which provides the 
core communication with the Redis server. And I wrote one that used async IO. And it was not only the shortest driver out of all of them, but with very minor issues, the whole test suite just passed. Oh, <laughs> I was like, nice. wow, that's amazing. <laughs> like it all just worked. Now, I don't know if that would work in like the real world because async Redis also makes some assumptions about multi-threading. Redis RB has like a lot of specs. And so essentially that you could take something like that, write this sort of like, I don't know, 50-line wrapper to make the IO asynchronous, and then everything just basically worked. It, mm-hmm. it blew me away. Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, I think these 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 kind of situations where you have legacy code, you don't want to rewrite all of it, but you want to improve the scalability. I think async can be the perfect um you know, at least it, it looks like it can do that. And the reality now is to get companies on board and people on board with the whole thing and let's do it. Like, let's actually take some legacy code and make it scalable just by this transparent non-blocking IO and, and, and potentially other things as well. And you were saying this is possible because the method signatures don't change and the objects that return don't change. So you can write an async version of a library and as long as the API is identical, if a code is running inside a reactor or it's not running inside a reactor, it'll it'll work just as well. That's correct. There's actually almost a little bit of a different point from the one I was just making, but it's, it's uh, equally valuable. So what's interesting is that one of the things that I thought about when I was building async was users shouldn't need to know if the code they're invoking is event-driven because why should the user be forced to set up the environment. They just want to call a function and it does something. They don't want to have to like go, oh, this function could be async. So I better like make sure I'm running inside an async reactor or something like this. So what I did was I explored these options. And so when you write uh, in Ruby, async do, and then your code, what that does is if you are in a reactor already, it makes a task and it will run that task concurrently with any other task in the system. But if that is the top level, like if there's no reactor currently running and you write async do in your code, it will create the reactor for you and run your code inside a task. So inside your library code, if you want to use async, you can hide async and the user will never know about it. And to me, that is like another element of the whole approach to lifecycle and like managing the expectations of a user. So like I just give you like a really concrete, like simple concrete example of that. In Ruby DNS, when you start the Ruby DNS server, it uses that approach. So it has like an async block at the top level uh, entry point. If you want to control the lifecycle of the DNS server, as a consumer of that library, you create your own event loop, like you go async do and then Ruby DNS server start or whatever. Then that returns a task, which you can wait on, stop it, you can kill it, whatever you want to do. Like you, you have complete control over its lifecycle. But if you don't, if you just call, you know, start RubyDNS server, it will spin up a reactor and that method will block until the server is finished. And so like you basically get the best of both worlds in terms of semantics. Essentially, if you want to control it, then you can. And if you don't want to control it, then you just ignore it. I think like, again, it comes back to like making the experience for the user as simple as possible. They shouldn't need to know like how the code is working in order or like what concurrency model it's using or, or what parallelism model it's using. Like you just shouldn't need to like worry about that. From the point of view of the consumer, it's like a method you call it and you do something with the result if you need to. Yeah, I mean, I think that part is pretty exciting because, you know, it, it really makes it a real possibility that as people um, update libraries or as, as they create new libraries, you know, they can 
make use of async and take advantage of the reactor. And like you said, the the people who are adding you know their library to their gem file, they may have no idea that it's using any of this, and they can continue to use it in their existing apps. And maybe later they they find out a little bit more about what async is and how it works, and they decided to add it in later, and they they still don't really have to change a whole lot of their code. Yeah, it's really it's like a really good summary. Yeah, and I think the really interesting point actually I just thought about because of what you said. In my case, we have uh, some legacy systems set up using Passenger as a web server, and that is running per process. And we have some issues where we need concurrency in a single request. And so even though we're using Passenger, we can use async inside Passenger. It's still obviously the event loop is going to block the request. But within that async block, we can do asynchronous behavior like interacting with Redis and upstream APIs. And at the end of that block, everything comes back and the request continues and nothing is leaked outside of that block. There's no global state or anything like that. So uh, in that sense, like it's really a um, powerful set of abstractions. And, and I think ultimately what I've been thinking of for the past couple of years is, is what is the right semantic model? I don't really care about the code that much, although I do care about the naming. <laughs> naming is a big deal. But, but for me, like what is really important is the semantic model. The, having the right semantic model for how people build scalable systems is absolutely critical. And right now, Ruby just gives so many mixed messages. There are so many different ways to do things. And as a developer, there are so many ways that can go horribly wrong. And my research is is really just showing that. I mean, it's all very well saying like, oh, thread safety, you know, it's an issue. Mm -hmm. But really like having these tangible examples and looking through the code myself really just made me think, oh, well, (laughs) this is pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) This is more about the the library ecosystem, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, when you're building a library, one of the other ones I looked at is the money gem, which is like has 22 million downloads, I think. Wow. And that, that gem has like thread safety issues. In fact, a pretty like critical one. When you, I mean, I don't think anyone is affected by it. Otherwise, they probably would have like figured it out by now. Mm-hmm. But there's this shared global state called a, uh, it's called the bank store and it stores exchange rates. And if you access that store from multiple threads, and my, my test, I had sort of like, cause just because I was trying to hammer it, I had 100 threads adding 1,000 exchange rates each. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that test, you would expect 100 times 1,000, right? So like what? Right. Uh, then... At the end of my test, like I had eighteen, oh. <laughs> I had eighteen exchange wow. rates in my in the store, and it's because the threads were just like clobbering each other. Mm, and yeah. what was even worse was not only were the threads clobbering each other, but actually within one thread, you could write an exchange rate to the hash table, and then you could read it back, and it wasn't there. It was mm, it was just gone. Yeah. So I think people are trying to make these gems, and, and it, it's not really a criticism, like because I, I have no entitlement regarding like people making code and giving it away for free. Like, you know, it's awesome um, sure. that people are doing it. But look, we just we have a landscape and a semantic model that just promotes disaster, basically. <laughs> like it's, yeah. um, I've had people talk to me saying things like, we only deploy multi-process because we are not confident right. that Ruby is capable of dealing with multiple threads. And I think when I heard that, I kind of just, my, my heart went out to the JRuby and Truffle Ruby team. I was just like, they have worked so hard to make threads a reality in Ruby. Yeah, yeah. And now we're in this like really crazy situation where we have all this code. Those problems are just magnified a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the, the only solution I think, um, and, and this is not really causation, it's more like correlation, 
the reason why I made async was because I see it as being the only solution to this kind of complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, single-threaded, asynchronous I.O. and timers and, and sort of event-driven behavior is ultimately the only way we're going to isolate this, these kind of problems and build up, um, build up code that can actually work correctly. And I think it's going to be pretty painful, to be honest. Like, I don't think it's uh, a trivial issue to address. I think like, independently, these bugs can be found and solved. But I think as a whole ecosystem, like trying to move this whole thing forward, that that that, that is really the, the key and, and it's going to be the difficult element. And, you know, maybe guilds are the way to do it. But the thing is, with guilds, you know, assuming they're sort of like similar to Erlang lightweight processes or GoRoutines or whatever, is then you have to like take everyone's code and somehow get it to work in that context. So async is kind of like a bridge between those two things because async works today in Ruby. You can take basically any Ruby code, throw in async, and parts of your code will scale better, depending on how much effort you spend on it. But if you take something like a guild, you are potentially removing thread, removing mutex. Like, does, does mm-hmm. do those things operate inside guilds? I don't know. So then all the code that depends on mutexes and threads could, be, could become broken, for example. And then you look at things like how message passing needs to work or, or, or those changes to the semantic model, which is really going to affect uh, existing code. So it's going to be tricky. It's going to be a complicated thing to kind of um, come to terms with, I think, as a, as a community and as an ecosystem of, of libraries. But, you know, it's, 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 it's possible to solve those problems. And I think async is kind of like, a, you know, it's my stick in the ground saying, yeah, this is what we can achieve right now with what we've got. Yeah, and I think what's kind of interesting about like these these issues with threading and all these different libraries is that you know when a lot of people talk about Ruby's performance, they kind of talk about you know the the global VM lock. They talk about like oh you know I can't I can't run things at the same time because of this lock. Um, but I'm wondering if that lock is actually what is protecting a lot of these libraries it, you know it's it's what's allowing a lot of them to run without seg faulting um you know due to the existence of that lock that is a really good question and i think what i can say is the process of understanding the gvl is almost like spiritually transformative mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um what, what i mean by that is that i think when i was like a teenager and you know and working through my first programs and, and mm-hmm. mucking around with C and Python and, and other languages. And, you know, you hear about this thing called the GVL and you think, oh, why would they put the GVL? You know, it seems like such a stupid idea to, to lock around all that stuff. Yeah. You know, it's just, uh, why can't I make real threads? Like, what, you know, what is the logic of it? And you kind of have this irritation around, or at least I did. I was just, I was just irritated. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, it seems to be such an impure thing to have right. in an interpreter you know, why would you leave all that performance on the table? Mm-hmm. And then you slowly come to terms with like why it's there. And I think the <laughs> pinnacle of that for me was when I read the comments, I think it might've been thread.c or thread.h. There's, I'll look it up and I'll tell you afterwards, but there's a comment in the top of one of those files that says, here are the five possibilities. <laughs> Enumerates, Oof. you know, in very straightforward, you know, at least from a software engineering point of view, uh, language. What what are the options? You know, like if we have a GVL or we don't have a GVL. Uh, if we have okay. fine grain locking versus not, and like mm-hmm. you suddenly realize that defining classes, defining methods, method caches, all these like things in the Ruby VM are actually not thread safe at all. And mm-hmm. to make them thread safe would basically be impossible. And so I think when you look at that. 
uh, guilds or the idea of like lightweight processes as a separate semantic form of asynchronicity within Ruby starts to become much more appealing because then you start to model it more explicitly around the life cycle of the user's code. So, okay, I have like a bunch of um, gems I want to load. Uh, so I want to load all that code into memory and then I want to make uh, one guild per processor in my system. And each of those guilds uh, has access to this shared region of memory, which essentially becomes immutable. And then those eight guilds operate independently, but they're in the same process address space. So you can do things like sharing uh, immutable objects between them. And then you can do things like have independent garbage collection. So if you wanted to have, like, say, 32 guilds because of garbage collection overheads, you could do that. And so you start to build a more complex semantic model. Like in Erlang, for example, each Erlang process has its own garbage collector. So, you know, guilds try and solve the problems. My, my original opinion was, like I said to Koichi, why don't we just make threads work without the GVL? You know, JRuby mm -hmm. has done it. Truffle Ruby has done it. Why can't we do it? <laughs> I think he thought that was a bit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like I think the only solution is the one that they're proposing. It's kind of just because it's pragmatic. And yeah. It's it's in a way like as a software engineer and as a computer scientist, I, I don't believe anyone who encounters that and seriously thinks about it isn't at least slightly disappointed that that is the solution. Right. But I have to say just, you know, going through that whole process from like when I was a kid and kind of just coming to terms with programming and hearing about things like the Python had its own G, kind of GVL yeah. and just thinking, why would they leave all that performance like on the table, mm -hmm. you know? But then you suddenly realize over time, like every step you take, you just realize how nuanced and how complex the whole thing is. Yeah. And then you read that comment at the top of <laughs> three dots yeah. or whatever. And you think, yeah, okay, no, this is probably the best option yeah. <laughs> out of all possibilities. Right. One other thing, I guess, I'd like to to ask about async. You know, at the beginning of the conversation, you were talking a lot about how shared mutable state is a problem. Um, in the context of the async library, if someone has state that they want to share between um, the different reactors or you know the different tasks, what what kind of uh, way should they approach that? Async provides. Uh, there's, there's another gem called async container. And what async container does is it abstracts parallelism between JRuby, Truffle Ruby, and CRuby. What I mean by that is that in CRuby, if you have eight CPUs, you want eight processes mm -hmm. running. If you're uh, in JRuby and you have eight CPUs, you want eight threads, and the same for Truffle Ruby. And so what async container does is you give it a block of code and it will basically run that as many times as it can that makes sense on your current hardware. Mm -hmm. So the way that Falcon utilizes that, for example, is Falcon basically has this block where it loads your application, creates the server, and then starts processing requests. And it runs it inside an async container. So that on CRuby, it uses eight child processes, and on JRuby, it uses eight threads. Mm. So coming back to your question, like how do you communicate between those systems. So in the Falcon examples, there's a chat example. And the simplest way you can do that is you just tell Falcon to run with one process <laughs> or you know one container. Oh, okay. And so you basically have only one reactor and you just need to um, do a little bit of like you need to pay attention that you, you have like a semaphore or something so you manage the state if you need to. And essentially you just have like a list of users and there it's a it's a hash table of user to socket. 
or WebSocket or whatever, and mm-hmm. then you can write message out just like Node.js. Just you know, if you've ever written like a chat system in Node.js, it's exactly the same. Okay. And you can run Falcon just like Node.js using one process, and you can probably handle like I don't know. Um, I recently heard someone did a million WebSockets in async and Falcon on one process. <laughs> <laughs> so you know that that can scale pretty far. At the point that you get past about, I would say, 10,000 connections, 10 or 20,000 connections starts to become the point where the Ruby garbage collector causes issues. And mm-hmm. Aaron Patterson, who has been working in the compacting GC, mm-hmm. he has he was pretty excited to try and to understand that problem and see if he could figure out a solution. Yeah, It's, it, it's quite a complicated problem because of the way fibers uh, work and we need to do the stack scanning. Uh, but anyway, coming back to your question, <clears throat> how do you get these things to communicate? Because of the way async container works and the way that I recommend that people use async container for their server systems so that you get the maximum amount of parallelism out of your hardware, you need to either use something like Redis, a database, or even just a shared um, Unix pipe or something to communicate between them. Got it. And uh, that is the simplest way to achieve scalable cross reactor communication because then if you for example if you use redis then you can run falcon on a cluster of machines and they will all those reactors will be able to communicate with each other uh, like you won't have to do anything it will just work out of the box okay yeah. um if you use a database then of course you get all of that it's basically the same thing if you use a thing like a unix socket or uh, ipc then you're limited to the current system so you know there's a number of like solutions in there the simplest one being run it like node.js with one process and that's that's sufficient for some use cases uh, if you need more scalability, then use something else to do the communication. I have played around with implementing a message bus in pure Ruby uh, that fits mm. into async, but I think it's just better at this point to use Redis. It's more mature. Um, it was more just like for fun to see if it was possible. Yeah, and it sounds like the async container concept that would also apply when you have something very CPU bound that you want to run on another process as well. Absolutely. So async container serves two main purposes. Um, the first purpose is to say, here is a block of code, run it in one reactor per CPU core. That, that's like one kind of uh, main sort of semantic mode of operation. The other mode of operation is spin up this task and run it like this Ruby code, uh, run it uh, as efficiently as possible. And so on CRuby, it will fork and make a child process, uh, and on JRuby, it will make a thread. Mm-hmm. And so that allows you to do things like job processing, or if you just want to like spin up a whole bunch of isolated tasks, you can do the same thing. So, so you can do that. And I guess in the first situation where you're spinning up like a number of tasks, Async Container recently got the support for um, gracefully reloading those tasks. So that's used inside Falcon to do things like graceful restarts. Um, so you can reload your application without. Uh, dropping connections and so on. So like async container kind of serves as the the foundation that bridges the gap between CRuby and JRuby and Truffle Ruby in a way that the user doesn't have to worry about it, but gets the parallelism. So, so async container is like a vehicle for getting parallelism out of your implementation. And it creates async reactors per CPU process, and then you can get concurrency. So it, it layers it all up. And in a way, like you don't have to be concerned about how that layering happens. You just write your code and you say, make me containers, make me edit them, make me 30 of them, and it will just it will just work. So that's really exciting because it sounds like you almost built out like this whole ecosystem of in terms of tiers of 
if you're building an application, you start with using the async library and using the async IO library and you know just working just in a single process without having to create threads and things like that. And if you have a need for actual you know parallelism, then you bring in async container. And um, like you were saying, as far as the shared state, you can make use of basically things external to Ruby, but basically get you the same result in terms of using external database or pipes, things like that. I mean, plenty of people use things like memcache for Mm -hmm. PHP systems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's super common because PHP has um, like a one-shot process model. Right, so when you get a right, request, right. it basically spins up an interpreter and it just discards it. Yeah, which is awesome because you don't need like a you don't need like a super complicated GC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty pretty like clever. And um, so you know, in the same sense, you know, dropping a memcache. Uh, we don't have an async adapter for memcache yet, but mm-hmm. it's definitely on 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 the cards. Mm. Uh, we're, we're just really polishing up the async Redis implementation. And it's actually being used by a number of people now, which is pretty cool. But, you know, ultimately, um, you know, when you look at like shared mutable state, sometimes doing it in process is just a bad idea anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at it from a semantic uh, point of view, if you have code, which is depending on shared mutable state, it's very, very hard to reason about how it behaves mm-hmm. in any given situation because it could just depend on so many factors. Yeah. So the whole e- async ecosystem is built around isolated classes which layered together or composed together to get the behavior you want, but there's no, there's no hidden internal state which is shared between those instances. Like you will never run into a situation where, <laughs> never say never, right? <laughs> sure. um, in theory, it's designed around those, those kind of concepts that we, you make a class, you set it up, you do something with it and you finish with it. And then that, that is the life cycle. So life cycle is a really big thing. And making code predictable to users is just, in my mind, like the most, to me personally, it's really important. Like I want to be able to reason about the code I run. And if I can't, then yeah. something is horribly wrong. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a conversation that um, I think a lot of language communities are having now uh, in terms of, you know, what are your dependencies and kind of do you understand what's happening in them, right? And I think um, in a lot of cases, it's it's almost impossible to really understand, you know, all the things that you're, you're including in your program. So one really exciting thing that came out of a conversation just a few days ago was this idea uh, around trying to understand exactly what you just talked about. You know, what are your hidden dependencies? Mm-hmm. And so to give you an idea of what we currently do with async, uh, so there's a gem called async RSpec, and that gem implements a whole bunch of uh, convenient uh, RSpec contexts. Like one is for detecting socket leaks. Like mm-hmm. if if you forgot to close the socket, then mm. it will give you a warning and fail the spec. Yeah. If you you can put memory, you can go expect block of code to not allocate any strings or to allocate one string of size three megabytes. Or you know you can put kind of constraints on memory allocations. And Falcon has a whole ton of them, so we don't have any memory usage regressions. And um, another one that recently came out of this conversation we were having was the idea of saying, this block of code should not mutate any global state. <laughs> mm, so the idea yeah. being that this was just dreaming. We, mm. we don't know if it's possible to implement yeah, or not. Um, yeah. Of course, I can go and start uh, working on the CRuby hooks that are necessary. You know, maybe it makes sense. But, but the idea was, imagine if you could just put in your specs, by the time the spec is finished, the memory all the memory that Ruby is looking at has not changed. Like mm-hmm. there is no like obvious side effect of running this code. Yeah. 
And the idea would be that you could take an existing system and evaluate, you know, where are the issues? Like, okay, I ran this code, like say, let's say the money gem, for example, and I add an exchange rate uh, and hold on a moment, like this, this shared global has like been modified. You know, did you realize that was happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing is like, Maybe that's obvious, but maybe it's not obvious when that gem is layered like 10 layers deep in some right. other person's library. Sure. Like you just don't know, right? So the idea is that could you take something like your own code and then check uh, how pure is this? Like, is, is, is it something which is modifying or accessing global state? Or is it something which is just isolated to its own state? And, and I think you'd have to have certain exceptions because sometimes you do have local caches. So you'll be able to say something like, expect this block of code to not modify anything except for this thing, this mm-hmm. one thing. But anyway, it was kind of pie in the sky dreaming. But, I, you know, it would be really interesting to see if something like that was possible with Ruby. We just need to add some hooks, um, some trace point hooks for when you modify a variable, uh, like a global variable or instance variable or something like that. And if you could do that, if you could track those changes, yeah, that to, that to me seems like a really incredible tool for trying to bring, you know, how to, how to understand code and understand where things could po- possibly go wrong. So there's tons of code out there like that does, detects like race conditions in multi-threaded code. Uh, I don't know if you saw the recent article, but Google implemented like a, a race detector in the Linux kernel and they literally oh, yeah. found like hundreds of race conditions. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> like what, what hope is there for the rest yeah. of us, you know? <laughs> you know, if the Linux kernel developers can't, you know, can't get all of all of those conditions correct, you know? For sure. Um, you know, and sometimes you just shouldn't need to care about that stuff, you know? I, I guess the thing is, is like any help that the computer can give us, like, you know, us as developers, we can always use, right? Like that's, you know, one of the things that's really been pushed with languages like Rust and Elm and things like that is having an attempt to have the computer help us more in terms of discovering mistakes or uh, things like that. And I, I know with, with Ruby, definitely we could... Uh, use that given its dynamic nature. Um, but it's just like, you know, it's hard, right? <laughs> yeah. In C++, we have the UB sanitizer, UB san and ASAN address sanitizer, and they are just amazing tools mm. for looking at how code behaves and, you know, like if you have a multi-threaded code. So I've implemented fibers for C++ as well. Oh, okay. Actually, Ruby was the prototype and C++ was the real deal. It was for a commercial oh, contract. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was really fascinating because the address sanitizer um, was super helpful in pointing out uh, issues with like handling memory, use after free, and potential issues. And I just think we lack uh, sufficient tooling for Ruby in those areas. We're, yeah. we're starting to get it. But it's definitely an area where, you, you know, like, me looking through code manually and trying to figure out if there's race conditions mm-hmm. is kind of, you know, what we need to do is we have to scan through the top 10,000 gems and go, which of these gems have potential race conditions and right. then figure it out. You know, yeah. uh, it's just not feasible for one person to go through all that stuff and deal with it. But, yeah. it's you know, the potential risk is massive. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I, I would imagine with, you know, C or C++, probably it's just a matter of uh, time investment, right? We have so much critical infrastructure that's that's built on top of those languages that you know there there are probably companies that that are funding you know that type of tooling. I think yes and no. I mean, like a lot of the my understanding is like the address sanitizer and the undefined behavior sanitizer came from Google. 
Um, oh, so obviously okay. they are invested heavily in yeah. C++ mm-hmm. and obviously with the race condition detector, yeah, uh, they're yeah. heavily invested in Linux. So yeah. I don't think they do it just out of the goodness of their heart, but sure. it just makes sense <laughs> to them um, right. to do it, which is fair enough. And they give it to everyone, so it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I guess uh, with Ruby, we're at a point where concurrency and scalability is potentially becoming a bigger issue. So having appropriate tooling to help understand tech issues and sort of manage them would make sense. And I think one of the big fears that people might have of async would be what kind of issues might I have that I didn't realize I had. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's kind of tricky. Um, It's one of those things that when you look at async, you think, okay, well, it's single-threaded and it's isolated. So what what are the potential issues that you could have with it? Mm-hmm. And the potential issues are more to do with people who have assumed code will run strictly sequentially. But those issues also exist with threads and are actually worse. So right now, one of my um, goals, I'm giving a presentation uh, at Ruby World Conference in Japan in a couple of weeks. And my goal is to kind of put out there uh, Yes, you should be fearful of concurrency and parallelism, and that includes async to a certain extent, but you should be more fearful of threads and systems right. that use threads. Okay. <laughs> because the potential <laughs> chance of issue, just you know, objectively, like looking at, at code, is potentially much worse. And, and I think that that's kind of the problem that we're faced with right now. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it sounds like you know you've put a, a lot of thought into this, and you know you've really started building out the ecosystem for async. So I'm I'm really excited to to see hopefully people run with that, and we get more of a focus on concurrency in Ruby, and maybe not think about threads so much. Yeah, I mean, I'm super excited. People are starting to use it, and. People, it's not just kind of casual, like, oh, I just tried it out, but people are actually using it in production systems. That's awesome. And, and they're giving good feedback, you know, like, okay, it worked, or, or we had this issue, or we had one person who tried, <laughs> was super excited and <laughs> deployed Falcon. You know, Falcon is like zero point something, so mm-hmm, it's, not, mm-hmm. it's not really like stable. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, it's still in kind of an unstable point. And we have this, we, we had a funny joke. We just said it was the longest issue in GitHub's history. He was trying to replace Puma with Falcon mm-hmm. for this middleware proxy serving like hundreds of, maybe even like gigabytes mm. of data per minute or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Falcon, it had some issues mm-hmm. uh, with leaking sockets based on the use case. Uh, and we fixed, we fixed some of them. Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating was, is that there's two ways of looking at it. You could go, oh, Falcon's not as good as Puma or Falcon's not as good as X or async is not as good as threads or, or whatever. Or you can say there is one person who has been like toiling away for like a couple of years who is passionate about these issues. And the fact that Falcon like performs like 99% as good as Perma yeah, <laughs> is just yeah. like incredible. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and in some situations, like can perform way better. So that's the exciting thing, you know. If, if people can get on board with that, if they mm-hmm. people can get excited about it and try it out, that is just the most awesome thing ever. And I'm really excited by people who invest effort in and I have had some of the most amazing experiences over the past year with people who have been excited by it, and, and yourself included. So I thank you so much for that. Yeah, thanks for putting putting in the work and you know for agreeing to chat today because you know you sort of you put a lot of thought into the API and into the documentation where 
I, I actually kind of remember in the past looking at, say, celluloid and trying to get to grips with kind of what it was doing and, and how to use it. And I found it a lot more challenging. And I found that, um, you know, async was a lot easier to kind of jump into and, um, you know, just take a look at some of the examples and um, really see the case for for why this could be something um, really great for Ruby. So thanks so much for for doing all of that. You're totally welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you as well for trying it out. So I guess to you know to wrap up for anyone who's interested in checking out uh, async or checking out Falcon or the the work you're doing, uh, where should they head? The best place to go right now is probably the GitHub page for async i'm sure we can post a link to that for somewhere sure. yeah we'll get that in the notes and um you know we don't really have a forum we do use gitter for chat but what i would suggest is if you have questions sometimes those questions actually are actionable documentation changes so please feel free to submit issues even for just basic questions because if you have that question then clearly the documentation needs to be improved so uh, a welcome a welcome interactions through github issues Nice, and um, I know you've given a couple of conference talks, so we'll we'll be sure to get those in the notes. And uh, excellent, thank you. You've got one coming up. You said in just a couple of weeks, right? That's correct. Yeah, that should be exciting. <laughs> I'm supposed to like submit the slides today, but oh. I'm still working on them. <laughs> is that is that normal? Is everyone in that like in that situation? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? I've I've heard different things. There's some people who are very. Um, uh, very organized, yeah, very organized. <laughs> and then and some people who are still writing the slides on the on the on the day you know, of, before the yeah, presentation. Yeah, yeah, they're like, uh, I need to go to a quiet place so I can just finish up. And it's like, all right, <laughs> that's um, that's really cool. Like it's uh, I think just this, yeah, they were all this year, right? You're gonna have three this year. Yeah, yeah, it's been crazy. You know, the things are picking up steam. You know, things are happening. It's exciting. Super exciting. Matt, Matt's is interested in it. That's awesome. I'm always excited about all of this stuff. Yeah, that, <laughs> it's just incredible. I'm, it blows my mind. Yeah, that that's awesome. Um, and yeah, I just uh, not too long ago I watched your your last video where you uh, you had the one million connections you talk, <laughs> and then you had Matt yeah. press the button to get that last one. So that's awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. Totally hang out with Matt's and the rest of the Ruby team is such an awesome bunch of people. Um, so yeah, I'm super honored to be invited and involved. Well, cool. So I just wanted to thank you again for agreeing to come on. And I look forward to seeing where the future of async goes and the future of uh, Ruby in general. Thank you so much. Show notes for this episode can be found at softwaresessions.com, where we've got links to Samuel's conference talks and blog posts. If you enjoyed the show, please tell someone else about it. And we'll see you next time. Serialize all modifications into. Sorry, sorry, is just. <laughs> sorry is so advanced. Yeah. <laughs>